0: And as it is the fourth Monday of the month, uh, that means one thing, and it is the time when we focus on the University of Dallas. Very honored to have in studio only the second month in a row as president of the University of Dallas, Dr. Jonathan Sanford. How are you doing? Welcome. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me again, Dave. Happy to be here. And I think this may be the first time that you've come in and pre-recorded, and there's a very good reason for that. So this isn't a live right now, no phone calls, but uh, had a distinguished guest coming on campus earlier this month. And so you said, hey, let's come on in early and record and then play back on the 26th. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased to have in the studio today George Weigel. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, already are familiar with some of his work. He is um, one of the foremost public intellectuals in America. He is a Catholic theologian. He is the distinguished senior fellow and William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And um, he has two tremendous biographies on John Paul II. And I want to focus on some of his work with respect to our great Pope. St. John Paul II. The first was Witness to Hope in 1999, and the second, The End and the Beginning in 2010. He also uh, put together his memoirs of the experiences of his work with St. Pope John Paul II and Lessons in Hope, My Unexpected Life with St. John Paul II. So thank you for being here, George. It's wonderful to have you. It's
1: always uh, great to be at the University of Dallas, Dr. Sanford, and uh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, of course, the pleasure is mine. So, what I often like to do is, is when, when I interview a, um, a faculty member at the university, is talk a little bit about how they came into their discipline, what motivated their work. Um, we have a number of young people who listen to this this show, and and I think it's an opportunity to provide some some inspiration to them. So. As a, as a Catholic theologian, um, um, is that the sort of thing you dreamed of doing when you were in high school? I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a Catholic theologian. <laughs>
1: um, no, not really. I mean, my, my life uh, it has been an unexpected one, as the subtitle of that memoir suggests. I, I've never really finished a decade doing what I thought I would be doing at mm-hmm. the beginning of that decade. Some of that has been, I, I think, as I understand it, providential. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it has been a determination throughout my adult life to uh, constantly ask myself the question, what should I be doing now? What is what mm-hmm. is God calling me to do now? Uh, we each have unique vocations. Those vocations can evolve and develop over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never expected to write 28 books by... Yeah. Right. my uh, 70th birthday uh, but i've been blessed by the opportunities uh to lead the kind of literary and active life that mm-hmm. i have found uh, congenial and and to keep the life of the mind going uh, during that mm-hmm. uh i i really think the the decision of the bishops of the Pacific Northwest to close the seminary I was teaching at mm-hmm. in 1977 was the greatest break I ever had in my <laughs> life. Uh, I mean, I, uh, it forced me out into the world of think tanks, research institutes, uh, journalism, uh, mm-hmm. and that's been uh, a wonderful way to try to be an agent of evangelization uh, for the last 35 years.
0: Yeah, in many respects, I would say you've been able to have a much greater effect on um, those who pay attention to such things um, that that uh, you publish in, the journals, the books, 28 books, as, as you've said. You've got quite a following, but there aren't many... Academics, I can think of, who, who have anything close to that kind of influence.
1: The, um, the benefit of, of being a kind of freelance intellectual, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, is that you have the freedom to do what you think you ought to do. Yeah. Uh, I was quite happy running the Ethics and Public Policy Center from 1989 – Until uh, late 1995, when the idea came into my head, I should write the biography of John Paul II.
0: And uh, I had... Just spontaneously came into
1: it. It was actually while I was reviewing a particularly awful biography (laughs) of of John Paul II. And I I, I was sitting in Leon Cass's living room near the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leon and his late wife Amy were hosting... My daughter, who eventually came to the University of Dallas rather than the University of Chicago.
0: Great choice there. It was was a
1: very good choice. And I'm reading this book by Tad Schultz, and it was just awful. And I said to myself, I can do better than this. And so I eventually pitched the idea to uh, the pope, and he agreed to cooperate with this. But it's that kind of freedom that Mm -hmm. my— way of leading the life of the mind, has afforded me. I am very grateful for places like you, Dee, for what they do uh, for students. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain stability yeah. in that life. But do I miss department meetings? No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or, or getting called by your dean or provost or, or God forbid, president uh, uh, to... I was an
1: acting dean of studies in a graduate school of theology at age 25. That's how crazy things were wow. in the Pacific Northwest in those
0: days. Well, be, before we, we get into uh, talking a little bit more about uh, John Paul II, uh, you had not just one daughter, but two daughters yeah. who went through the University of Dallas, and and you have been a tremendous friend of the University of Dallas. And what 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 in particular um, did you have in mind when you wanted your daughters to be educated by us? Uh,
1: Both of my daughters, I think, knew what they wanted professionally early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, My older daughter, Gwyneth, I I think from the time she was in high school, wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And my younger daughter, Monica, wanted something to do with the literary world, the drama world. And you know what my wife and I said to both of them is you, you can do whatever you want in graduate school, mm-hmm. uh, but you need to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And the kind of comprehensive liberal arts education that uh, UD offers, uh, the human environment that UD, UD offers, the transformative experience of the Rome semester, mm-hmm. that prepares you for anything. Yes. So my older daughter went from UD to Johns Hopkins for her MD. My younger daughter went from UD to New York University for her Master of Arts in Theater Education. Mm-hmm. She's now running she's now the education coordinator at a huge arts center in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older daughter's a practicing pediatrician as well as a mother of 3. Mm-hmm. And UD helped make that possible. Yeah.
0: That's that's outstanding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um so, witness to hope this is this is the product of that of that inspiration, inspired in part by by a negative reaction to a, a substandard biography and uh, the the book is truly ambitious i mean originally, I think it was two volumes now you can you can buy it in a in a single volume
1: no it's still um it's still one okay, uh, okay. and it's it's a two volume project, in that the end and the beginning is the sequel to i got witness it to hope. I got it I got it but uh, no witness to hope was the idea was to get a comprehensive telling of the story of this remarkable life out in time for the great jubilee of 2000 mm-hmm. so i had to do that i had to do witness to hope which is a 995 page book because my publisher <laughs> said the number 1000 will not appear in this book <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had to get that done in three and a half years, so okay. it was uh, it was the pedal to the metal the whole way. But it was an exhilarating experience, um, and I I like to think the analysis has stood up over time. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of John Paul II's life, in fact, at our last dinner together right before Christmas, two thousand four, I said to him with respect to the fact that Witness to Hope ends in 1999. I said, Holy Father, I want to promise you that if you don't bury me, I will finish what I began. Mm -hmm. I'll finish the story. So that became the second volume, which is the last six years of his life, a, a comprehensive analysis of what that life meant. But in the interim period, I had come into possession through some Polish historian friends of these remarkable documents from communist secret police agencies throughout Central and Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. that illustrated in a very powerful way uh, the communist attack on the Catholic Church uh, between the Second World War and the collapse of communism in '89. Mm -hmm. So the second volume, The End and the Beginning, actually goes back through that, History. Uh, this time with some remarkable primary source material that I never expected to see in my life. but yeah. was very happy to have a chance to work with.
0: You know, the the end of uh, John Paul the Second's life is a remarkable one for reasons that go just you know beyond the obvious geopolitical um, effects that he had. His his tremendous leadership. In so many ways, but but the, the witness to suffering, well, that he provided us, um, uh, he 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 truly shows us how to how to shoulder the burden of our humanity in a remarkable way, and um, one that I I think um, we don't see many examples of. These days, yeah. no.
1: He he was a man with what I would call a cruciform spiritual life. Yep. I mean, that Carmelite dimension of him, uh, the cross-centered spiritual life, uh, was was very deep in this mm-hmm. richly textured personality. And having preached that his whole life, that. The road to Easter leads through Good Friday, and there's no exit ramp that you can get around Good Friday. I think he wanted to give a last testament Mm -hmm. to that, Mm -hmm. and it encouraged enormous numbers of people. I mean the number of people who have come up to me in the past – 15 years or so and said, I can't tell you how important it was to my mother or father or to me in some cases mm-hmm. that while I was suffering from Parkinson's disease or I was disabled in some way, mm-hmm. I I could live this with him right. as, as he was living it. And um, it, that was not without intense spiritual suffering. I mean, there's an, uh, it's an incident I describe in the fall of 2003 uh, I describe in the end and the beginning where uh, he was he was just in one of these cycles of the parkinsons where his body was completely frozen mm-hmm. and uh, he could barely form words and yet we were together uh, for a television presentation of uh, in, on Polish national tv for his 25th anniversary as pope and he just looked at me mm-hmm and and you could he was speaking with his eyes look, see what's become of me yeah and I think that was his last dark night experience wow. and then I saw him two weeks later and he was you know back being his uh, more typical um, uh, I would not say optimistic but hopeful yeah. self yeah. Um, so he knew suffering from inside and he knew it Young. I mean, when he was the age of your students at the University of Dallas, he was living uh in a Nazi occupied Krakow where, as one of his classmates put it to me, the for six years the question wasn't whether you'd be alive on your next birthday or next Christmas. The question for six years was am I gonna be alive tomorrow morning?
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Th- that's pretty intense way to live in your early twenties.
0: So we're talking a little bit about the end of um, the life of Saint John Paul II. Um, you you had remarkable access to um, the man, as well as as to so much material. How how did that develop? how did How did you how did you get in the door, so to speak? How does one become a personal friend with a pope uh, to such an extent that that uh, they have regular access almost almost whenever? whenever you you wanted it, and and his schedule could provide for that.
1: I had been writing about John Paul II um, uh, almost from the beginning of the pontificate. I think the first piece I published on him was in April of 1979 on the encyclical Redemptor Hominis. Mm -hmm. And I continued to write about him over the next decade. And he had a pretty good intelligence network. Yeah. And I I think he thought that I and some of my friends like Mike Novak, Father Richard John Newhouse, were interpreting him properly Mm -hmm. in the United States. Then in the early 1990s, after a bizarre week fomenting democratic revolution in Moscow, I was flying back to New York and – reflecting on how totally unexpected this was. I mean, here I am in the belly of the beast uh, talking to people who want a democratic Russia, And I I thought the church and the pope must have had something to do with this. Mm -hmm. So I uh, pitched a book to Oxford University Press. Uh, My editor and friend there, Cynthia Reed, I said, I want to figure this out. And I think this will be a good book for you. And she agreed, and so I set about over the next year, trying to figure out what the church and the Pope had had to do with the collapse of European communism. Mm-hmm. That book was um, <clears throat> uh, published in the fall of ninety two um the um, Pope had actually read the galley proofs of that book through the mediation of a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. I was in Rome in that that fall and and gave him a copy of the book. And Mm -hmm. that was the beginning of our really serious conversation. And I think he – what he liked about that book, which was called The Final Revolution, is not that I made him the hero. Mm -hmm. That would never have occurred to him. What he liked about it was that I presented this political upheaval and transformation as the result of spiritual and cultural transformation. Right. Right. And nobody else had done that before. Okay. Nobody else had done that before. And in fact, at the time that book was published, there were a lot of eyebrows raised. I mean, what do you mean the Pope and the Catholic Church had something to do with this? Well, now it's common wisdom, and I'm happy to have been the first
0: one to articulate it. So let's talk about St. John Paul II's relevance today. Because, I mean, there was a time when I could not imagine – Existence without Pope John Paul II in, in office, he's he's been dead now for for some time, and um, and yet I, I think one can make a case that that he's more relevant than ever. And um, could you articulate some of the ways in which that might be the case?
1: I I think it's true as I tried to explain at the university a couple of weeks ago, in in two huge respects. One is his vision of the future of the church. Mm-hmm that Catholicism must become again a communion of disciples in mission, mm-hmm. in which every Catholic understands that he or she was baptized into a missionary vocation. That was the message of the 1990 encyclical uh, *Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer. Mm-hmm. That was in fact the message of the great jubilee of 2000. And in terms of public life, the – um, severe distress in the Western world today uh, that we are experiencing because of false ideas of the human person. Yeah, the notion that we're all just little twitching bundles of desires; those desires are morally commensurable. You can't say one is better than the other, mm-hmm. and that the function of the state is to satisfy those desires. This is killing Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And he knew that that was coming, right? And and tried to raise a warning flag against it, and believed that a Christian humanism, in which we take the measure of the human, from Jesus Christ, yeah. was the answer to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the anthropology.
1: That, Absolutely. That,
0: that's at the core. Right. So, um, a, a bundle of twitching. Desires, right? That's that. That I think is is one accurate depiction of of the anthropological um, sufferings we we experience. Um, also, a, a kind of dualism, um, mind body dualism that that's attached to that. What what about um, uh, the the human person in connection to community? And you know, in in, in his reflections on on on. Uh, the solidarity movement itself, and but also the the principle of solidarity as it makes its way through his his social teachings, um, and and, and particularly, I'm thinking of this in in light of the the isolation that so many people yeah. have been experiencing this past year under COVID. Um, what what is what does uh, Saint John Paul II have to teach us there? Well, uh, he teaches us
1: that democracy is not a machine that can run by itself. Mm-hmm. That it takes a certain critical mass of people living certain virtues, certain habits of the heart and mind to make the democratic project work or to make the free market work so that the net result is human flourishing and, and the common good and social solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, we have forgotten a lot of that in, in the U.S. Um, but I think this, this plasticity… Mm-hmm. Idea, which is embodied in the so-called Equality Act mm-hmm. that was under consideration in the Congress. Uh, the notion that I can declare myself to be something that I am manifestly not mm-hmm. and my neighbors are required by civil rights law to say unreality is reality, mm-hmm. this is a totalitarian impulse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it has to be contested with a nobler view of Of the human person. In terms of the rebuilding of solidarity in society, we begin to do that by rebuilding solidarity in the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, The church, as a Eucharistic communion of disciples and mission, is, as the Second Vatican Council put it in its dogmatic constitution on the church. A sacrament or a sign or instrument of the unity of humanity. Yes. That's where we're most one is around uh, the Eucharistic table of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And we need to recover that sense of Eucharistic coherence in the church in the United States in the wake of this past uh, dramatic 15 months of a lot of Eucharistic fasting for a lot of people.
0: That's right. That's right. So – that that's particularly obviously uh, the case for for Catholics. Um, what what effect does Catholics embracing Eucharistic solidarity and and reviving the Church in a way that's proper to their their particular um, walk in life? Um, what effect does that have on the wider culture in America? It's uh, something that's hard
1: for. People like you and me, uh, Dr. Sanford, who make our livings with our minds, mm-hmm. to acknowledge that Christianity did not convert between a third and a half of the Mediterranean world, between the Ascension and uh, Constantine. Mm-hmm in the early 4th century by arguments. We did not argue people into Christianity.
0: It's hard to believe that, but I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I it's, think it's,
1: it's, you know, Rodney Stark has written at least four books on this that I'm aware of. It was example. Mm-hmm. Christians manifested a nobler, more humane way of life, mm-hmm. particularly with respect to women, mm-hmm. sick, elderly. Uh, Christians did not abort children or practice infanticide. And, you know, eventually people watching that and thinking, gee, that looks better than the world of the film Gladiator. Right. Have to ask the question, how can you live that way? Right. And then the door is open to the evangelical offer. I can live that way because I am a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I tell you about him? Yeah. And then you go on from there.
0: You know, one of the things that thinking about uh, just just that um, witness – um, to a way of life on the part of the early Christians, witness to um, uh, care and respect for for each other uh, that uh, Catholics today ought to be exhibiting in all that they do in in a world that that can seem rather hopeless, um, right? So there's there's a sense in which we orient ourselves to eternity as as believers, um, and 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 yet um, the proper. Christian response to the anticipation, the hoped um, anticipation of, of eternal life with God, is plowing ourselves into the work right. of here and now. Why, why is that?
1: Because Christians are the people who know how the story is going to finally turn out. Mm-hmm. God is going to get what God wanted in the beginning. Mm-hmm which the book of Revelation calls the wedding feast of the lamb. That's the way it's going to end. We know that. So we can relax a bit Mm -hmm. about our successes or failures. Now that doesn't mean being insouciant. Mm -hmm. It means that we're not putting all our chips on the next election or the next promotion, uh, or the next Super Bowl, um, or the next world series. Um, we can – by being resident aliens, we can be the best kind of citizens. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Weigel, for, for your time. Um, thank you for a lifetime of significant work, not to suggest that you're done by <laughs> any way, shape, or form. Um, in fact, you've, you've recently come out with, with several – books, um, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter, and A Church in Mission, that's 2020, and Not Forgotten, Elegies For, and rem- reminiscences, reminiscences of a Diverse Cast of Characters, most of them admirable. In 2021, you're still writing regularly for all kinds of outlets, including First Things. Um, uh, you have a regular uh, uh, space in First Things Online um, that, that I, I benefit from. Um, so I If you have not heard of George Weigel and you're in the audience, please, please do um, attend to his writings. You will be benefited from them tremendously. So thank you for your time and for your work. Thank you for having me.